chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 14 to verse 20. While you're turning there, just a couple of things. Um, the reason why we're at this verse this morning is because we started Mark's gospel a few months ago and we've been working verse by verse. So this morning, the reason why we're here is this is where we should be. And the second thing, um, I just want to thank everyone in light of last weekend's pastor appreciation. I want to thank everyone for the calls, the texts, the emails, the letters, the cards, the gifts, the pictures, and so many lovely, and it's well appreciated. And I want you to know that it's my privilege to serve you, and it's my privilege to to know you. And um, my wife and I often thank God that we're here. And so a large part of that is all of you. So thank you sincerely um, for that. Okay, verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. May he give us understanding of it. If you would, please just bow your head and we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Uh, Father, This sermon feels big. If it's just me, then I pray that you would constrain me. If it's not, then I ask God that you would work through me. As always, it's very clear to me that I can't do anything as I should without your help. So we pray for that help now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the end of this month will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. All of us in this room are beneficiaries of the grace of God given in the Reformation and particularly his grace given to men like Martin Luther. At the center of the Reformation was the question, how are sinful men and women made right with God and how do they remain right with God? The Roman Catholic Church had one answer. The Protestant Reformation had another. And it was this question, how are sinful men and women made right with God and remain right with God, which preoccupied Luther. And if you read anything about Luther, you know, you know that question wore him out. It nearly broke his mind and nearly broke his body until, until God's mercy came. And God brought faith and Luther came to discover what the scriptures taught, that justification, a right standing with God, is not a process involving a, <clears throat> a great number of... Uh, person doing his good deeds, refined and um, perfected as time went on. No, justification, one standing with God, is the grace of God revealed in the act of God in the death of Christ to pay the full debt of sinners, sins who receive him. If you like, this is um, catechism question. It's number 32, I think. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he forgives all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, accredited to us and received by faith alone. And you can imagine 
to go from a constant state, now this is Luther, hearing sermons and thinking in his mind, am I doing enough to merit God's favor and love and forgiveness? Again, added to that, continually hearing Sunday by Sunday behind the pulpits, you know you're not really doing enough. So you can try harder or you can pay with these indulgences to earn enough and get some free passes for God's favor or having to rely on your performance and all the sacraments to achieve for you what you so desperately seek. Right? And it's no wonder that all that gave rise to superstition, to mental angst, just to name a few things. So you imagine going from all that to learning from the scriptures that Christ at the cross has done all you need to know God's forgiveness, to know God's favor, and to know God's love every day for all time. Now you go live and enjoy and rejoice and bear fruit in that truth. And it was that which gave fire to Luther's words. They're, they're very quotable. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. This is when Luther understood finally justification. Flung open gates for him. He didn't have to fling them open. If you like, the salvation that God planned... The salvation God provided only in Christ was finally being applied to Martin Luther's soul and Christ was being preached as he was meant to be preached. Now, why do I begin this way? Well, this scene here in chapter 4 in many ways is descriptive of 16th century Europe, the birthplace of Protestant Reformation. And frankly, this scene is similar in some places here and now for this reason. In the Reformation... When the good news was finally being preached the way it should have been, right? After many, many centuries, not every religious person nor the religious establishment of the day believed and said, praise God for the Jesus Luther is preaching and praise God for the gospel Luther is preaching, right? And in the same way here in Mark chapter 4, when the good news was actually being preached by none other than Jesus, everyone was not saying, praise God, let's repent and let's believe on this guy. No, three of the four sorrows in the parable told by Jesus give indication that many, if not most, in the crowds, they were not with him and they were not going to be with him ever. So as in the case of the circumstances Jesus was born into, it's very, very similar to the Reformation. For centuries, the people of God in Palestine had been fed week by week just whole bowlfuls of pharisaical, external works-based righteousness. For centuries, uh, just like the pre-Reformation days, their teachers had mishandled the proper use of God's law. For centuries, they mishandled the main and plain message of the Old Testament. Thus, they made a hash of its instruction. For centuries, the teachers mishandled, passed down an improper understanding of who this Messiah would be that God would send. So, yeah, these teachers seemed like men of God, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, they seemed, scribes, they seemed like men of God. And yeah, you bet they were great at passing down judgment and pointing out the sins and the shortcomings of the crowds, which to the weak-minded and those with a weak conscience made it easy to seem like, wow, these guys really know their stuff. And yeah, the teachers were experts 
at external religious achievements, right? However, external religion is a con game. It is dishonest, and in time, it will fall flat on its face. All law and no gospel. In fact, we all should pay attention to this, but particularly parents, all law and no gospel. And you will always either create a Pharisee, a pretender, right? A self-righteous person, or a sickly, brow-beaten individual, or a person who frankly is honest enough to say, forget this. This is nothing. I don't want to hear this week by week by week. You can have it. In other words, the people of Jesus' day, they were not being taught, nor nor on their own could they understand. And, And they were culpable here as well. So they were unable to approach their sin in humility and honesty, looking to God for mercy and for righteousness that they could never achieve. Therefore, having failed to come to grips with their utter hopelessness to achieve righteousness, many in the crowds were continually looking inward, looking at themselves, pressing, working hard to achieve righteousness. And as a result of this, Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and says, stop looking inward. You stop looking at yourself always and stop looking at your deeds and your religious endeavors and you look at me. In fact, he says in verse 3 when he begins the parable first time, he says, listen to me. Listen to me. Here is why the salvation you need, every bit of it runs through me. In essence, Jesus was preaching himself and he was saying, I love you. I'm going to die for you because I alone are able to make you right with God. They, in time, were being taught to look at themselves. You're not doing this. You need to do this. You're not doing this. You need to do this. But Jesus was preaching himself. In essence, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me, literally, face me, look at me, and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And see, this is why Paul, when he told the Colossian church, he goes, guys, 128, we preach Christ. Uh, Corinthian church, the haughty Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the one string to my bow. Tim Keller, to preachers, says this. Every time you expound a Bible text, you're not finished unless you demonstrate how we cannot save ourselves. And that only Jesus can, which means Christ, the gospel, the good news is preached from every text, every time. In essence, gospel every time. And you see, all that comes by way of introduction, and it reveals to us how dark the human heart is. Because again, in this context, divinity is right before these people. The remedy, Jesus, is right before these people, he set before them yet three of the four groups in the crowd, they will not have him. And in time, they'll reject him. The gospel is the message Jesus is preaching. Good news, guys. Repent and believe on me. I'll carry away your sins and I'll remove the burden of your sin. And again, three of the four soils when they hear the faithful teaching of the word, the faithful teaching of the gospel, will either instantly or in time reject Jesus. That takes us right to the parable. Four points. Number one, the seed. Now you'll notice verse 14, 
The seed is the word of God. The farmer sows the word. It's like almost like a kid's song. The farmer in the dell, right? The farmer sows the word. The word here is root is logos, a living word, Jesus Christ. So when the word of God is faithfully preached, Christ will always be preached. He's the true seed. And there's nothing wrong with the seed. Notice that. Nothing wrong with the seed as long as the seed, the word of God, Christ, his gospel is faithfully preached. Now, let's go down this line because we need to. This means how-to sermons, moralistic do-better sermons. You can do it. Here's how sermons, family, finance, and your sex life sermons when it's ripped out of context. This is not the seed that Jesus is spreading. Check your Bibles. When we went through Colossians, we had a great cult from Goldsworthy. I'm going to use it again. And, And again, it's the pastors. To say to our congregation what they should be or do, and not link it with the clear exposition of what God has done about our failures to be or do perfectly as He wills, it is to reject the grace of God and lead people to lust after self-help, self-improvement, and a way to call a spade a spade in a way that is godless. Right? So to tell a person of their sin and to give them any other medicine then the gospel remedy, the redemptive work of Christ, Goldsworth says, that's godless, right? So either in a sermon, a song, or a lesson, we stink, you stink, I stink. <laughs> if that's all it is, <laughs> that's not enough. And not only this, now think with me, sermons that say God wants you to have it all now, the finest you now sermons, your inner power unleashed sermons, Blab it and grab it sermons. The secret to hearing the voice of God sermons. How you can be the real you sermons, which would be awful for me. But anyway, how you can become, a, how you can become debt-free sermons. Breaking free of family curse sermons. Being a man's man sermon. The end of the world all cleanly marked out with dates and names and places named sermons. It is not what Jesus is preaching. Check your Bible. Therefore, when Jesus says the seed is God's word, the confidence of heaven is in the word of God itself. The problem is not in the seed. Just as long as the seed that's spread is Christ, is the gospel, is the good news, relies on Jesus as God's word is faithfully preached. Okay? Number two then, the sower. And what we're going to find out, the problem is not in the sower because the sower is who? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Jesus who wept over sinners. He pleads with them. He warns them. He even sighs over them in Mark's gospel. But he never changes the message for them. Right? There's a hymn that has, Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. That's Jesus. That is the sower, the seed, the word of Christ, the word of God, the gospel. The sower, our Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone who preaches in His name and the power of the Spirit, right? So everyone behind the box with all their fallenness and all their weakness and all their sins and all their frailties that they have to walk up the steps and carry behind the pulpit. There's nothing wrong with the sower, not in that context. And this principle runs through the whole of the history. As long as the gospel is faithfully preached, right? Jesus, chapter 3, verse 14. Do you see it there if your Bible's open? He sent the apostles out to do chiefly what? To preach. 
This is God's chief means of how He grows His kingdom and gathers in His flock and will come then to its fulfillment. Okay, number one, the seed is the gospel. Two, the sower, Christ Jesus, and all who faithfully preach His gospel. Number three, the soil. The soil represents what? All the various responses to the seed being sown. Now, some people today in our kind of highly charged commercial world may be tempted to say, well, no, no, no. It's not that there's four different kinds of soils. It's more like there's four different kinds of approaches. So one person tried this, and another tried that, and so another tried something else, and the fourth one got it right, and there was a terrific response. So quick, let's bottle up the fourth approach and sell it on the Internet, right? Because everyone will want this approach because it works. No, Jesus says, no, no, no. It's the nature of the soil. It is the heart of the listener which represents the response of the people. Now, do we need to do our very best to create an environment where the listener is able to listen? Oh, yeah, as we say here now, as I say now, you betcha, right? However, the problem lies with the listener. It's not the seed. It's not the sower when it's the faithful preaching of the gospel, but the listener, Jesus says, wherein lies the issue. And I want you to know this before we move on. I don't want you to think that Jesus is only referring here to uh, evangelistic occasions, the Greek, the Greek certainly doesn't lend itself to that. No, every time the word is open, every time the word is preached, then the seed is cast. Every time. You mean Sunday by Sunday? Yeah, Sunday by Sunday. And the different soils here represents the different responses of the people listening to the word of God being taught. Okay, final point number four, but don't get too excited because it'll take a minute or two. The lesson then the soil. Soil number one. You see it there, verse four. Jesus said, the seed fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. If you put down your eyes to verse 15, Jesus gives the explanation. And what Jesus is saying indirectly here to the crowds is, listen, there's a portion of you who really don't care at all what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, you, I sow the word and yeah, you hear it, but it's like water off a duck's back. There's no real draw to it. There's no thinking what he's saying through at all. Hence, the evil one comes and literally, the word there, he snatches it away because the seed just laying there unguarded and so you remain unchanged. If we had been there as Jesus preached the gospel and we were listening to what the crowd was saying, some people might have said, well, you know, he's not much to look at. His stories are okay. I don't really understand everything he says, but the stuff I do understand, I don't like his application. I mean, what's the sinner and repentance and God's wrath on sin? What is that? And he can't be speaking about me. I'm fine. I synagogue stuff and Sabbath stuff nailed down. And Jesus says, when that kind of thing happens, behind it all is the activity of the evil one. So I don't know. It could be an impression in the head saying, you know, you don't need this. This is not true. Uh, Look, if you give yourself to this, you're going to be a religious nut. And you know what? Sooner or later, they're going to start asking you for money. Right? So you just get out of there. That's soil number one. No interest in the truth, thus no fight to retain the truth. Their soil is more like a sidewalk, and the seed just lays there to be taken away. Easy pickings for the evil one. Soil number two represents the rocky places. And here again, Jesus says, this is one of the ways that men and women respond when the word of God, the gospel, is preached. And again, you'll see in verse 5 and 6, he gives the beginning of the story. Verse 16 and following, others like the seed sown on rocky places, they hear the word. At once receive it with joy, but since there's no root, 
They last only a short time when trouble or persecution comes. Because of the word, they quickly fall away. So Jesus says, this is a person who receives the word of God proclaimed with great joy. And why wouldn't they? I mean, it is the good news. It's the good news. But what happens is they skip the message and go right for the dessert. And, you know, maybe it's like an emotional response because it's not too hard, especially in these days, to create an emotional response. You know, dim the lights, bring out some candles, a good sad story, a good sad song, and you just get this emotional surge. And that can happen pretty easy. Even as I say that, the other side of that, I thought about this as soon as last Sunday was over with, honestly. I was thinking that when I was in high school, we had the pep rallies and, you know, the two sides of the gym and we would cheer to each other and we would say, we've got spirit, yes we do, we've got spirit, how about you? And then they would come back, we've got spirit, yes we do, we've got spirit, how about you? And then we'd do that for a few rounds and then someone would say, we've got more, we've got more, and then, you know, we didn't. And so what happened was, at least where I was, the church camp started stealing that and they changed it, maybe you've done this, we love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you? And then the other side would go, we love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you? Right? And then the self-righteous people would say, we love them more, we love them more. But anyway, I was thinking, okay, you have one side, real Christians. We love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you? And then these rocky souls, if you would, soil. We love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you? And you go a few rounds of that, and then this side says, we love Jesus, yes we do, carry your cross and follow him and lose your life for his sake. And then the rocky soil people go, we love, what did you just say? <laughs> What did you just say? And you're like, yeah, Jesus said it. He said it in Mark 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel and for me, you'll have it. And then he actually said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, then when that day comes, I'll be ashamed of you. Now, it would almost be funny, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so sad? But it's not funny. I've seen this. I'm sure some of you have seen this over the years. The Word of God is sown. Response is joyful. People are like, yeah, Jesus. They're pumped. Give me a list to sign up. I want to work for Jesus. But as soon as something happens, some kind of trouble, persecution comes because of the Word. The cross that they are told to bear is too heavy. They set it down. Instant bloom, instant fade. The boyfriend says, you know, look, it's either me or Jesus. The girlfriend, me or Jesus. And you like them. You love them. And you know it has to be Jesus. But there's no root. And as quickly as you say yes to Jesus, you say no to Jesus. And you fall away. Your old friends, is Jesus really? Church stuff, really, really? Uh, Scorch. The word persecution means the opposition literally chases you down. You quickly bloom. The hunt is on. And your devotion to Jesus, to be counted with God's people, the inevitability of conflict, which will always come because of the word, it proves too much. The trial comes, and this soil quickly fades away. Third soil. This is a soil plagued by thorns, verses 18 and 19. Still others, like seed sowed among the thorns, they hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, in the first two soils, all the pressure was external. In the third soil, the pressure is actually 
internal. This is divided loyalties. This is the one who has set their future, charted their course, and as time goes on, the seed is choked out. Not only this, the first two seeds, pretty quick nose. One's really quick, one's kind of quick. Here in this soil, it's not a quick no. It's a slow no. So it could be years. It could be many years. It could be many, many, many years when the true self is revealed. Jesus means nothing. You don't glory in Christ anymore. However, the activities of the saints, the the goodness that belongs to that, they're easily demoted, eventually replaced in this third soil. So there's very little interest in the worship of God with His people. No effectiveness in your Christian existence. And increasingly, it is friends and family and fun and festivals which occupy your time. Now, I did a little Google search really quick and I was curious about thorns and the whole like soil stuff. This is what I learned. Thorns, like weeds, they steal space in the soil. They steal nutrients from the soil and they block the sun. And if it's left that way... It kills the vine, right? It kills the vine. So essentially what it's saying is, is that Christ, his loveliness, his worship, his obedience to him begins to be crowded out more and more and squeezed out more and more over time in this soil. And it appears like their heart is thorny. And what does then take place in this person? Jesus, very straightforward. See that in verse 19? Number one, the worries of life. Literally, the cares of time. The cares of time. Now, two things come to mind. One by way of warning and one just by explanation. Isn't it kind of funny that a lot of popular Christianity, the commercialized brand, is pretty much only concerned about the things of time? It's always finance and family and quality of life and living the dream and da-da-da-da. It's all now, now, now. Second, so often, in here and out there, the person who worries all the time and who projects this, they could seem like the brightest one in the room, right? Be careful. Better not. You never know. I'm not sure. And because worry can have such a tight grip on our mind, it would almost appear like if you do worry, maybe you know something the rest of us don't know who are trying like the Dickens not to worry. Or if you don't worry, it must mean you don't care, right? You don't really care if you don't really worry making it seem like you are a very, very good Christian if you don't worry. If you, excuse me, if you do worry. Sorry. However, here in the parable, Jesus is saying plainly, worry is actually the kind of thing which can keep you out of heaven. Right? Worry in itself isn't so awful. It's what we do in light of that worry. It's the divided mind. Will he? Won't he? Trust him? Don't trust him. Chokes to spiritual death. Which is why Jesus told his followers, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, guys, I don't want you to worry about anything. The whole of your life, the cares of time, food, drink, clothes, life, it's all covered. And so this person comes back, what about my job? What about my future? What about my kids? What about my college? What about my budget, health, house? And it's like, look, this is gospel remedy here. No worries. The Christian says, Jesus, I can frame my life in that truth. And Jesus is like, oh man, you bet you can. You bet you can. Now, will you just think with me for a moment? Can you imagine how many things in Christianity would dramatically change if we took more and more of this to heart? I mean, it would be a different world. Uh, Intellectual capacity would grow. 
spiritual capacity would grow. Warmness, affection, tenderness would grow, right? Ministry would grow. Domestic harmony would grow. Workplace harmony would grow. Romance would grow. Why? The worries of life are kept in check. And in the parable, Jesus says, there's a certain kind of hearer who responds to the word Apparently, they seem fruitful, yet in time, they prove unfruitful. The seed is choked, and if it isn't choked by the worries of life, Jesus goes on to say, it is choked by the deceitfulness of wealth, which is the other side of worry, right? The other side of worry is wealth, the deceitfulness of wealth, because sometimes we think the only real remedy to worry is wealth. However, Jesus again, Sermon on the Mount again, he says, look, guys, no one can serve two masters. You're going to have to leave the one and serve the other. And then he ends by saying, you cannot serve God in money. You just can't do it. Paul to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Inference, who is certain? Now we know, we get that backwards. Wealth seems very, very certain. God is like, ah, uncertain. Paul goes on. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Why? Well, in that way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves in heaven as a firm foundation so that, and here's the line, they may take hold of life that is truly life. You get that? Take hold of life that is truly life, which is the deceit behind the thorns of the deceitfulness of wealth. Because this kind of soil believes you get the money, you get life. Right? You get the money, you get life. Even the chipmunks. You know the chipmunks? Simon, Alvin, Theodore, they have fallen for this. They have a song. You know you got it made when you drop an Escalade. That's the Cadillac SUV, right? Dropping dollars. Hey, you're like, chipmunks, you can't see that. Kids are listening. Therefore, Jesus says, the deceitfulness of wealth, in certain cases, chokes the word, chokes the seed. And that is the very thing for the growing ineffectiveness in the lives of those who profess they are followers of Jesus Christ. In a phrase, instead of growing better, they're growing worse. They're growing worse. Paul, again, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And maybe one of the final griefs that they will pierce themselves with is that they are locked out of heaven because they fell for the trapped. Then finally, Jesus says, worries of life, deceitfulness of wealth. And then there's a catch-all, the desire for other things. Other things other than the primary things, the things that matter most. Other things other than Christ. And again, Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus says, you take care of my things, I'll take, thing, I'll take care of your things, and, and we reverse that to our peril. So we say, okay, God, listen, here's my list. You take care of all these things, and if you do, I'll respond by taking you seriously, and I'll really let it rip for you. But here's my list. Jesus says, no, 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 it's backwards. Listen to Hebrews 12. The writer says, throw off everything. It's almost the same Greek word, by the way. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. In other words, okay, listen. It's clear what is bad can deprive us of bearing fruit for the Christian life, but also things that are inherently good will deprive us from bearing fruit in the Christian life. 
Love of sports, love of travel, love of hunting, love of family, leisure, success. So a person looks back and says, what happened to me? How in the world did I get this way? Why so little interest? Why so little zeal? Why so heart in moved when I sing and I hear Jesus preached? How did I get this way? Thorns, thorns, life worries, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. And loved ones, we would do ourselves a great disservice if we did not acknowledge that in the time that we live in, the love of leisure has invaded the church. There's, there's a Greek word that was used at the time of Christ. It is oshios. And it, what it means is literally full of leisure. And it was descriptive of a person whose whole bent of life was to enable them to live a life of leisure. So everything they did on one end was setting a course for leisure. So what happened was, in time, the words meeting changed, and this is why. Because people looked at this kind of person and saw that they were ineffective, useless, and sterile. And what happened was, because they saw that, they said, they began to basically name this. And so what happened was, instead of leisure serving the good, leisure became an end to itself. Thorns. And it isn't ever a decisive moment. Is it not in this soil? It's a slow choking at the roots. It takes time and the thorns begin to squeeze more and more and, and inevitably it chokes the life out of you. Final seed. Soil number four. This is the good soil. Thank God. Verse 20. Other seed like the seed sown on good soil. Here's the word. Accepts it and produces a crop. 30, 60, 100 times. Remember, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and they are burned. Now, what is Jesus saying? When a person hears the word and the soil is good, there's something engaging. There's some assimilation happening. They're taking Christ to themselves. They're putting him on. They're welcoming him in. This is the essence of a true conversion. Just forgive me just for a second. I thought, what's the best way to explain this? Well, before we had kids, it was just my wife and I. And then we had kids. And now they're all gone, right? And we're empty nesters because you guys keep telling us that. But the point, the point is, it's like, it's okay. It's just us. And, you know, I really like her and she really likes me. And this relationship is, I hope she does, it's personal, and, and it's a person. So Christianity is not an ethic. It's not, you know, being in love with the idea of a Jesus. It's actually Jesus. It's actually a person. And you enjoy that person. And you believe that person. And so when trials come, and the dark moments come, your anchor is heavy. And it holds firm in the storm. And they endure to the end. Hebrews 10, 39. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So that we do not have, Hebrews 3, 12, a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And the yield here, 30, 60, 100, all that means is that our production is not uniform because our roles are different. So we can't always measure our fruit with other people's fruit. That would be all horrible. It ruined the whole thing. By God's grace, we do produce. No root, no fruit. But with root, there's some fruit. Now we need to end. Two quick applications. First, this story is not about the ability of the sower. Right? 
because look how wasteful the process is. This is Jesus. He's scattering, scattering, scattering. He's scattering his seed thick and wide. And it would seem that there's more waste than profit. Three of the four, no thank you. And that could be such a discouragement. In fact, if you try to do cost-benefit analysis, that goes out the door because there is so much waste. So much waste. Teachers know this. If you teach in the schools, you know this. So does the teacher of the Bible. Sunday by Sunday, week by week, year by year. Put on your blue shirt. Put on your khaki pants. Get out there and preach. Scatter the seed. Another Sunday to scatter a seed. Another reminder that it's not about the sower. It's about the seed. So what is the medicine to the inevitable discouragement, right? Because three out of the four say, no, thank you. Two things. One, God has promised, Isaiah 55, that his word will not return void, but it will accomplish his purpose. How? Through the sowing of the seed. Throwing, sowing of the seed of his word. And two, and we say this here often, nothing we do for Jesus Christ will ever be wasted because of the resurrection. Right? So chin up, those of you who teach here, chin up, eyes forward, rejoice in that truth. I found a quote that I like. There's a day coming when lost sermons must be accounted for. Right? So we're working the sermons week by week. And this, this happened literally Thursday. We got infested by like those Japanese beetles and I'm preaching and these things are falling on my head and there's house flies. I'm like, oh Lord, help me here. This is terrible. But here I am. <laughs> here I am. That's the first application. Second application, when we hear the word preached, it's like we're looking into a mirror. So we say to God, show me myself here. Which soil am I? Am I progressing, assimilating to Jesus, or is there spiritual atrophy that's set in? Right? So the things of Christ are becoming harder to enjoy, harder to apply, harder to obey. Am I growing good, Jesus? Are you helping me to that end? Are you really inside of me? I actually want to love this stuff that takes place in the life of this, your church. James said this. We must humbly accept the word of God planted in us, which can save us. Puritans, if the word does not help us by calling us to faith, it will in turn harden us, revealing the absence of faith. So to come here Sunday by Sunday, make no response. What will happen eventually is that you will lose interest. And sometimes what happens is you begin to focus on the peripheral, the secondary things, the extraneous things, and no longer on Jesus Christ. We need to stop. Paul, well, maybe Paul, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, this is my encouragement to you. Even though we speak like this, we are convinced of better things in your case things that have to do with salvation. That's my first word to you. And the second word is what we say a lot here this morning. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray together. Father, we sang the song today, you are a good, good father. And there's no doubt in that at all. 
We recognize when difficult times come, we, we might be shaken about that a bit, but we know that ultimately you are good. You're a good father. You've given us good news in your son, and it's for everyone to enjoy. So this is my prayer, Father, that everyone listening to me now will be the fourth soil if they're not already, and they will bear fruit, some a little more than others, but still bearing fruit, and they would enjoy what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. You're the only one that can do that, God. And so we pray to that end and we ask for your blessing now over your people as this day unfolds. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you.